This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. Mathematics research is better than sex. (laughs) No, it's not. Or you need to be having better sex, I'm just saying. I've had a lot of sex. And I'm... I'm telling you... Oh, my God, it is so exhilarating to find out another missing piece of that jigsaw puzzle of of mathematics history. It was on this freeway, outside of a muggy, overcast Melbourne, Australia, hurtling at 80 kilometres an hour that I think... For the first time, I appreciated the extent of my Uber driver's love of numbers. Like, I ended up with, like, a 4.94 rating because I was the therapist for people. Because they always say, so what do you do? And so I say, oh, um, I'm a maths historian and I'm a maths researcher. Yes, Jonathan Crabtree, my Uber driver, he's no ordinary Uber driver. In fact, he's a man trying to solve a puzzle. It does not actually all fit together. There are too many pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that are missing. This mystery starts with a circle. Alone, it symbolises nothingness, both vast and infinitesimal. But when you attach this circle to something else, everything seems ten times bigger. And then suddenly that nothing becomes something. It's sort of like a mini Big Bang. How can nothing be represented by something? This is a possibility of something. We don't know what it is yet. So it's changed everything. Have you worked it out yet? That circle of nothingness that can make everything bigger. It's zero. The number. It's been with us so long that it's easy to forget that somebody, somebody invented that. But who? Bakshali Manuscript is the oldest known written document of mathematics in India. The Bakshali manuscript is the symbol of the jewel in the crown. This is a saga of massacres. Two million killed. It was a colossal loss of life. It was a disaster. The clues are littered through time. There are so many missing links and many things, many such things that were there in India and once have gone missing completely. And the scars have continued to fester. My name is Mark Fennell, and in the days of the British Empire, things were taken from around the globe to be put in libraries, museums and galleries in England. The question is this. Was the greatest, most elemental mathematical discovery of all time discovered in India? Or is it just some stuff the British stole? When I was 21, I was uh, riding my motorcycle into university and a truck did an illegal turn and I bounced off the side of the truck and span through the air. And I landed on the curb on my back and I smashed my spine very badly. So I'm in hospital, I'm told I'm never going to walk again. I was an atheist, but I had a God moment and I then became an agnostic. (laughs) I thought there's a chance here that there might be a God. Ah, you did the old hedging your bets thing, didn't you? I hedged my bets. And so I made a deal with God 
and I could have been dosed up on morphine at the time. Strong chance. I was. Uh, I made a deal with God. If I can walk again, I will fix mathematics. That was the 18th of March, 1983. All right. You have to admit, as origin stories go, that one's pretty compelling. Jonathan Crabtree is an Uber driver by day, but his true passion, nay, obsession, is mathematics. And if your eyes just started glazing over at the prospect of numbers, just stick with me on this one, because aside from the motorcycle accidents, this story has battles, it is the birth of whole nations. But for Jonathan, it really does start with an ancient injustice about the number zero. Well, back then we called it naught. We didn't even use the word zero. Strangely enough, pull me into line, the word naughty actually derives etymologically from naught. It does, in fact. Uh, In classic 14th century capitalist thinking, to be a poor child or to have naught, it must naturally follow that you would get up to no good or be naughty. So naughty, don't be a naughty child. That's actually related to naught and zero. I'm in Jonathan's house in the suburbs of Melbourne and in front of me on the dining table are pages, pages and pages, and each one of them has a a letterhead. We're talking about letterheads here from this Buckingham Palace, the United Nations, Prime Ministers, you name it. These are response letters because for years, Jonathan has been running a campaign, both in paper and online, to have something returned to India. I've got a petition. It's been signed by several thousand people so far, and it's uh, Stop the Steel, Return to India. So the Bakshali manuscript, it's in England, and the British stole it. Mmm, spicy. So, the Bakshali manuscript. I've got to be honest with you. If you were to Google pictures of it right now, it doesn't seem like much. We're talking about a large, thick, old book. And affixed throughout the book are... 70 leaves of bark. So you're actually looking at tree bark with writing on it. Each piece of bark is encased in transparent mica on either side. So it was discovered in uh, northwest British India in 1881. There was a, a person who started to translate the bark with the text on it. Into, into English and understand what's, what it's all about. It was then realised it was a very precious manuscript. In terms of actual content, what you're looking at here with these pieces of bark, well, I mean, they constitute one of, if not the, first maths textbook. It's a list of rules about things like algebra and geometry and then examples of that. And it's written in prose, almost like poetry. But in between this stunning sort of Sanskrit writing, there's also these little dots. Dots. And those dots are zeros. They are the first appearance of zeros in a mathematics book. And in Jonathan's estimation, not nearly enough people know about this Indian gift to the world. And so he goes around and tells people about it. I am invited to talk at mathematics conferences, at universities and at schools. And let's just say that in India, at least, Jonathan finds some pretty receptive ears. Yeah, so I had billboards, with giant billboards with my face on it, 
welcoming me as a mathematics historian, you know, come and hear him speak effectively. All right, I'm just going to stop this right here. Full disclosure, I dropped out of maths in high school when I was about 15 or 16. So there's a part of the, I guess, the romance that sits around this number zero that I fear I may be missing. But it turns out if you talk to anybody that knows and cares about maths, the very concept of zero, at least the way it's used here, seems to be kind of revolutionary. I prefer to call it the naughty boy of mathematics family. Because you see, it doesn't go by the rule made for others. Nowhere in mathematics you will find that zero is following the rule made for others. Yes, old mate Jonathan back in Melbourne is far from alone in his fervent love of the number zero. So I'm calling from Kolkata, erstwhile Calcutta, the British capital, once upon a time. And uh, myself, Dr. Partho Sharothi Mukhopadhyay, I'm an associate professor of mathematics under the University of Calcutta. My mother was a maths teacher and I got fascinated by this beautiful number zero, its history, how it came into being, and that's how it all began. We are told right from our early boyhood days that India invented zero. It's a peerless gift of India to the world. When Parthasarathi talks about zero, his face beams with this national pride. Without zero and the without decimal place value system, the world would never have been the world it is today. The scientific achievements would never have been possible. This zero, you see, it's something unique, something queer. I give you an example. This is the only integer which is neither positive nor negative. This is the only integer which is neither prime nor composite. This is an integer which, when added to anybody, does not increase it. When subtracted from anybody, doesn't decrease it. When multiplied with anything, absorbs it. It cannot divide anybody, but everybody divides it. So it changed everything. So then this manuscript, this proof of one of India's greatest gifts to the world, why and how did it end up in the UK? Bakshali manuscript was found initially in 1881 May. It was discovered by a person clearing rocks. Allegedly, it was found by a local peasant. Uh, he was uh, not a literate person. And being centuries old, it wasn't in very good condition. And he tried to take it out and destroyed uh, a considerable amount of it. At least, luckily, he didn't throw it away. Okay, so at this point in history, this huge subcontinent that now houses India, it was pretty much entirely in the command of the British East India Company. So you got this manuscript that I think people recognise is important somehow. It starts to change hands and eventually it makes its way to the capital of British India, Calcutta, exactly where the doctor is right now. And this manuscript suddenly finds itself in the possession of a very interesting character. Augustus Frederick Rudolf Hernley. So he is the person who first read and understood and deciphered the Bakshali manuscript. This Hernley character has a fascinating history. He was born in British India to a family that was originally from Germany. He was educated in Switzerland and eventually became an expert in Sanskrit, this writing they had in India. But 
How does the manuscript end up in the Bodleian Library, which is now in Oxford in the UK? There's absolutely no reason why it should be in the Bodleian other than, I suppose, Oxford has always encouraged, you know, academic study. And so somebody who might be interested in this document would have come from an academic background. Uh, my name's Marcus de Sotoy, and I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. And it's probably worth pointing out that Marcus sees the manuscript's presence here in the UK a little different to the way Jonathan Crabtree, my maths-obsessed Uber driver, did before. You know, your your, your podcast is very <laughs> provocatively titled, uh, which I, I, I do enjoy. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's good, uh, and, and why not? And so I was thinking, you know, I don't think one can qualify this as a kind of steal um, mm. because it was gifted. Yep, that's how the Bakshali manuscript ends up in the Bodleian. In 1902, Rudolf Hernley did indeed gift it to this library. But whether that act of gifting somehow stops it from potentially also being stolen from the people of the subcontinent, well, that is a matter of opinion. The British Empire did a huge loot and many things, many such things that were there in India and once have gone missing completely. But the other interesting thing is, because this is a manuscript that made many journeys, journeys across countries, across regions, probably got swapped around people, passed on maybe as, you know, an important manuscript, I'm not sure I'd know where to place it. You know, it, it perhaps it's continuing what it always did, which was a journey to share mathematical ideas. And so maybe it actually is consistent with the fact that it was a journeying manuscript, that it has made the journey to the Bodleian. I have to confess, I have been struggling ever so slightly to understand exactly how this manuscript works, like what's actually written on it. But then, as Marcus explains it, I'm starting to understand the romance that mathematicians seem to have for it. They're a bit like crossword puzzles because you're given a sort of crazy problem. Um, This person has this thing, this person has, this is the relationship between them. Can you undo the problem and find out what each of them had originally? And so it's this was people probably enjoying maths for its own sake. They were enjoying the kind of puzzle elements. So these are your people. These are your people, Marcus. (laughs) These are my people, exactly. It's as if it's like a little crossword trying to wrestle with the ideas of can you sort of undo the puzzle to reveal actually what the number that I'm thinking of is. There is no shortage of Marcus's people around the world today trying to unpick the mysteries on the pages of that manuscript. People say it's this elusive number, it's both everything and nothing all at once. And I think something quite mystical or almost spiritual about zero So I am Clemency Montel, and I'm a mathematician. And Clemency works at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. So um, I research in the history and philosophy of mathematics, and basically what that means for me is that I love reading ancient mathematical texts in dead languages and trying to figure out what they mean. Definitely Marcus's people. So the thing is, this idea that the Bakshali manuscript features the very first appearance of zero as we know it, yeah... It turns out it's a little more complicated than I originally thought. There were words for zero in plenty of cultures prior to this document, but this particular one I think is important because it's a written symbol and it's that wee round circle 
that we still have today that is recognisable. But as Clemency points out, it's not just about the symbol and the shape itself. It's about how they use it in relation to other numbers. When you think about zero, what do you think about? How many of them I want to see at the end of my payslip? That's exactly right. So, you know, actually zero has this dual function, which if you actually... <laughs> That's not the answer you're after, was it? You, want, you wanted well, a philosophical no, but, answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, actually, it's a perfect segue. So you want zeros in your payslip, but you just want, you want certain types of zero, right? You don't want just zero. No, what Clemency is saying is you want to start with one number and then have a bunch of zeros afterwards. And it's the arrangement of those zeros that suddenly means something totally different. Our place value decimal system of numeration to distinguish the difference between the number 11 and the number 101 or 1001. So those are the good placeholding zeros that you want in your bank account. Up until then, We've seen zero appear as this placeholder in other early traditions, but it's the first time it really appears in a place value decimal system of counting. And that's why it's really exciting. Okay, so okay, so I'm going to recount this back to you and I, I get you to tell me which parts I'm getting right and which parts I'm getting wrong. So zero conceptually, it has a long history, right? Lots of different cultures have different interpretations of it. Correct. But the importance of this document is this document is the earliest record of the visual representation that you and I would recognise as zero today being used in the way that we use it today, which is as something as, you know, you can use it to demonstrate, yes, nothingness, but also you can use it to demonstrate a hundred or a thousand. It can also be used to kind of scale up numbers on a level that we hadn't necessarily been able to do before. That's exactly right. But as long as we agree upon the date of this manuscript, and that's the clincher. It sure is. There has been quite a bit of controversy over the last five years about the dating of this ancient manuscript. The timeline of Bakshali manuscript is so important, hugely disputed. The key is the time of the document. So let's talk about that. So in 2017, they did do some carbon dating on the Bakshali manuscript. They did. What happened? They took little samples and they did radiocarbon dating processes on it. And carbon dating requires Mm. burning a bit of the uh, manuscript. So they came up with some really surprising results and I think probably everybody was surprised. Results were rather bizarre because it gave different dates for different pages. Yes, each of the pages or folios of the Bakshali manuscript appears to come from a completely different century. Folio 16 was dated from the 3rd or the 4th century. Folio 17 dated from the 7th and the 8th century. And Folio 33 dated from the 9th or the 10th century. The dates are all screwed up from the carbon dating. We don't know how to position this document in the history of mathematics yet. This is a bit suspicious. What does this say about this document now that it's got such a big range in its dating? Well, uh, you open up a filing cabinet and you have records from the 1960s, 70s, 80s and 90s there. Could it be that the document was something that was contributed to over time? So yes, you're absolutely right. It could be a compilation of documents. However, the burden of proof seems to be on explaining away a few things if that was the case. First of all, if you look at the handwriting throughout the manuscript, there's this remarkable uniformity in the handwriting. How did we get such uniformity given some of the leaves might be different by 
500 years. There is a potential answer here, that the bark that makes up the pages of the manuscript was accrued over centuries, and only once they were together was that stunning evidence of the world's first zero as we know and use it finally committed to ink. But that would mean that we have to go with the youngest carbon date as a guide. And so that would place the manuscript at what age? Document seems to be around 800, 900 AD. It's probably worth pointing out here that there are some unknown unknowns here. So, for example, uh, when they treat birch bark before they write on it, they do so with oil. To prepare it, sorts of natural chemicals. But one wonders to what extent there might be some sort of contamination over the centuries of these additional chemicals which might contaminate the results. But putting that to one side, on the evidence provided, we pretty much have to go with the youngest date for the manuscript. The date of the youngest folio, I think, is is how we need to date the document. If that is true, is the Bakshali manuscript as groundbreaking as we first imagined? Well... We've got some other instances of zero in that part of the world, which we can date a bit more securely. And these are ones which are usually found on inscriptions that have been carved in copper or rock, which of course stand the test of time, unlike paper. And when it comes to the age of this copper and rock and their zeros? This would be the earliest instance that we would have of a zero. This whole carbon dating saga, on the one hand, it, it seems like it's a blow to the significance of the Bakshali manuscript itself. But the way Clemency reads it, it's almost the opposite, that all of these discoveries are actually a powerful reminder of just how far advanced the Indian subcontinent was with maths. And it actually highlights the often unsung role the region has played in the maths that we all use today. Correct. It's just, it's showing us that the, there's a well-established and well-documented practice and a maturity about using the symbol for zero and amongst all the other documents that testify to a very flourishing, mature mathematical tradition that had been going on for centuries. The idea of zero as a number in its own right is the, came from India. And that before India, you do not see zero being used as a number on its own. It's always part of something else. So that, I think we can really credit the Indian mathematicians and philosophers coming up with a a new idea of having a symbol for nothing in its own right. And then because of its power, it spreads very quickly. What do you think should be done with the manuscript? It's a very interesting question. So um, I know the Bodleian Library have been really generous. They send it places. You know, it's a very fragile document, so they have all sorts of library policies for it being sent so people can see it um, all over the world in the real. I guess there is a there is a trend now to try and repatriate objects back to the um, place in which they were found. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a bigger question, of course. For Partha Sarathi, that big question has a very simple answer. I do want everything back. And many things, many such things that were there in India and once have gone missing completely. But there's a problem with that back part. You see, the land that this incredible Indian invention came from, it's not India anymore. The village from which the manuscript was found, this is now in Pakistan. 
most people outside the subcontinent, um, perhaps even in Britain, don't appreciate the scale of what happened. Some Many don't even know that it happened. <laughs> um, you'd be surprised how many people uh, do not know or did not realize that India and Pakistan were once one country. My name is Nisid Hajari, and I am the author of a book uh, about the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947 called Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. My parents are from India originally, um, and my father came over uh, in the late 50s. When my mother was pregnant, she actually went back to India, so I was born in what was then Bombay, now Mumbai, but grew up in the U.S. To really explain just how complicated the fate of the Bakshali manuscript is, you have to go back to the dying embers of World War II. You know, at this point, much of the world uh, in Asia, in in Europe, has been devastated uh, by combat. India has been relatively spared, but Great Britain, which has ruled India for uh, a couple hundred years at this point, is exhausted, is broke. Britain didn't have the capacity, financial and otherwise, to hold on to India. It would have cost just far too much. I'm Aisha Jalal. I'm the Mary Richardson Professor of History at Tufts University, where I teach in the History Department at also at the Fletcher School. And Ayesha's family goes back to Pakistan. Yes, we have both sides covered. Anyways, we're talking about a time before the modern-day states of Pakistan and India existed. You just have this massive subcontinent ruled by the British for centuries. And the British, they can't stay on if they're not wanted. Um, they, they can't afford it. They don't want to leave troops there to try and suppress Indians who don't want to be ruled by the British anymore. And so they're going to leave. No later than June of 1948, a date that was uh, moved up to August of 1947 to expedite the withdrawal. But at the same time, for the previous, uh, I'd say about 10 years, tensions have been growing between the two main communities in India, Hindus, who are the vast majority, about three quarters of the population, and Muslims, who are quite a large minority. There was also around six million people of the Sikh faith in the Punjab region. But everybody knows that with the exit of the British, change is coming. Two things are happening in parallel. On the one hand, the British send a lawyer out to India named Sir Cyril Radcliffe to sit down uh, with some maps and figure out where this border is supposed to go. But he's never been to India before. He's really doing this as an almost academic exercise. Meanwhile, Sikhs are organizing, Hindus are organizing, Muslims are organizing, and they're organizing into what they call self-defense groups. They're essentially ethnic militias, members of all communities, were planning for violence. And in doing so, were really spreading fear. And the British aren't unaware of this. They hear the threats. You know, they know these tensions are there. It's almost as though all sides are sleepwalking towards this disaster. There was, I mean, nothing in place in terms of an orderly setup. Law and order uh, had deteriorated. And meanwhile, you have this uh, British lawyer in in Delhi, you know, fiddling with maps, trying to figure out where the border would go. And the tensions grew and grew until August of 1947. Even before the British unveiled their planned border between these countries, violence had already begun. Arson attacks in Lahore, spreads to retaliatory attacks in, in Amritsar. 
the riots are, are growing more intense and police are taking sides. Whilst all this violence bubbles away, the British leadership attend lavish ceremonies celebrating the birth of the nation of Pakistan. And then they fly back to what is now India for a public handover. You know, photogenic day of grand ceremony of the British leaving on supposedly good terms with, with Indians and Pakistanis. So they wait until the next day before they announce the border, print it in newspapers, announce it on the radio and so on. So you've got these multiple groups, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, whipped up, and then suddenly this border is just unveiled. And that's when those Sikhs who did plan uh, these attacks, um, this sort of almost ethnic cleansing of Muslims on their side of the border, that's when those attacks start. They start a spiral of retaliation. Um, you know, within hours, within days, and so then people are killed on the Pakistani side of the border, and it, and it just spreads from there. It was massive. The violence spread across uh, northwestern India. As many as two million are estimated to have been killed. But there's really no way of knowing. But we do know that millions were displaced. So if you were a Muslim in a Hindu-majority area, Banded individuals, as I refer to them, who happen to acquire weapons, who attack those vulnerable minorities uh, who happen to be in the wrong place and took their property, their belongings, sometimes their women, raped and abducted and killed. Uh, so it was horrific in every sense of the word. So about 7 million people uh, shifted to Pakistan and about the same number shifted from what was then Pakistan to, to India. It was a disastrous, unplanned, forced migration. And so you would have these miles-long columns of people on foot trudging from one side of the border to the other. They were attacked. People would be massacred and just buried in shallow graves, you know, to the point where there are photos uh, of these fields in the Punjab and you can see limbs sticking out of the ground where, where dogs and vultures have been digging away at them. So it was a colossal loss of life and the scars have continued to fester. And I think this is an important thing to understand about the partition between India and Pakistan is this didn't happen that long ago. The repercussions of it, we're still living with it today. India and Pakistan can't agree on anything. I mean, whether it's cricket or whether it's uh, an IMF deal that Pakistan's been trying to get through. I mean, India is the only country that votes against it. So, you know, this is the attitude which makes it difficult. And yet, caught in the middle is this groundbreaking legacy of the number zero. And about as fragile as the detente that keeps these two nuclear powers at bay is this delicate Bakshali manuscript. But where should it go? I think the question of where they should be returned, the question of ownership has been made more complicated by partition. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm particularly in isolation on the manuscript returned. Uh, so I think that it has become more difficult and it's become easier for the British to either say that, well, oh, India and Pakistan have never asked us, to, <laughs> but even if they have, where will we send it? Which brings me back to the outskirts of Melbourne, Australia, and the living room of Jonathan Crabtree. Despite all of the complexities of the manuscript's true history and its potential future caught between India, Pakistan and the United Kingdom, this 
white guy, is still the most passionate advocate for getting more people to know about how the subcontinent changed, how we all count. So if we can get this manuscript back, it's going to absolutely empower one and a half billion people straight up. And the one thing everyone does seem to agree on is that this is a legacy that the entire subcontinent should rightly be proud of. I mean, we're talking about the direct mathematical or even scientific heritage of a sixth of the world's current population. And I think it speaks more broadly to perhaps the way in which the history of mathematics has been characterised, that it's a very sort of Western-focused view of mathematics. So mathematics starts with the ancient Greeks and it travels, you know, there's the Dark Ages. I mean, this is the narrative. There's the Dark Ages and it gets rediscovered by early modern Europeans and Newton and Leibniz come along and spark off modern calculus and here we are today. But really, what we are finding is actually before the Greeks, there's India and China and the Islamic countries. There's this really incredible, rich mathematical tradition, but doing things slightly differently and perhaps not connected into these more Western narratives of mathematics. The Bakshali manuscript probably won't survive another century. Unsurprisingly, my enthusiastic Uber driver, Jonathan Crabtree, insists on giving me a lift to my next appointment. What we have to realise is that the whole Indian subcontinent was a whole bunch of different ruling royalty and kings and queens and so on. The people, though, they shared their mathematics. They bounced ideas around from all of the regions of of Pakistan and India. They still have the same past. It's had different politics interfere with it over hundreds of years. But I'm I'm optimistic. If it goes back to a university, a scientific institution, in its original region, then that can only be a good thing between the two different cultures. And as for what should happen with the Bakshali manuscript, I'll leave you with the words of Pakistani historian Ayesha Jalal. I would put it, to be very honest with you, Mark, in a place where it will be most useful. Uh, I think at this point, it's not just a question of possessing something that was found by a peasant in 1881. It's a question of who can make the most use of it. If we have the greatest mathematicians who can decipher it, or India does, then I think it has to be collective ownership rather than its possession that should matter, so that we can learn from it. I mean, I think it's, it's that which I would emphasize, that everybody should be allowed to benefit. Stuff the British Doll is produced by Zoe Ferguson, Leah Simone Bowen, Eunice Kim and myself. It is written and edited by me. The sound design that you're listening to right now is Martin Peralta. The executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak for CBC Podcasts and Amrutha Sleep for ABCRN. This is a production of ABCRN in partnership with CBC Podcasts. And before you go, Jonathan would like you to know one last thing. Just in case... Uh, my partner listens to this. Um, mathematics is almost as good as sex. <laughs> oh, there's been there's <laughs> been a rewrite. <laughs> been a rewrite.